Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open. And my lovely partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Ravinder, tell us all about your chat room. We have a great chat room full of people who are very willing to be uncertain, you know. They will hear everything out, but they, you know, judge the information and... uh, yeah, we all learn a whole bunch of stuff, and then we learn from each other because we question and re-question again. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, there, you usually show a video in your chat room. We do. And it is it features our guests discussing some relevant subject that we don't get covered in the show. Uh, so if there's somebody out there listening and they can't, for all intent and purposes, access the chat room, they're driving or what have you, um, how do they take advantage of that? Simply go to provocativeenlightenment.com and click on the archives. Each of the archives there, you can play the show, but then you can also replay that particular chat room log so you can see any of the information that we have put up there and I really enjoy those videos as well it gives me a whole different insight into the guest and if there are any earls that are mentioned etc they also appear there right They, they do indeed all right in this week's spotlight I wish to focus on the notion of thoughts and things our thoughts start about all the time They are anchored in some beginning, and therefore, when we search for where they came from, we inevitably find more thoughts. Almost like a holographic puzzle, our thought stream presents pieces that, although often unrecognizable, nevertheless, are rooted in some story, and central to these stories is ourself. Our interpretations of others, of all stimuli, our every perception, internal and external, are a representation of a thought linked in a storyboard of thoughts connected to our self-image. Like our beliefs, there is no such thing as a thought that arises without a history. Unfortunately, we often take our thoughts altogether too seriously. We make things out of our thoughts. We can tend to make them real and thereby turn our fears into physical reactions imposing our thoughts on our bodies, causing alarms to sound within, adrenaline, cortisol, and other neurochemicals to rush into the system, and so forth. Sometimes this occurs in low doses, and then we call it stress, as opposed to a full-blown fight-flight response, a deep sense of anxiety or depression. While thoughts have a creative power, That is only so if we invest in them. When we accept our thoughts of limitation, of fear, of anger, of revenge, and so forth as real, we run a truly great risk. Tara Brock tells a story that delights me, designed to illustrate how we should not take our thoughts as real. The story goes like this. It seems that there was a couple in Michigan. They're going to take a vacation to Florida because it had been a really long, cold winter. However, they couldn't both leave on the same day, so they agreed he would fly on Thursday and she would fly on Friday. He arrived and discovered that the hotel had public computers, so he decided to send his wife an email. He did not realize that he had one letter wrong in the email address when he sent it. Meanwhile, far away, another woman just returned home from her husband's funeral. Her husband was a minister, and he had died of a sudden heart attack while delivering an exhilarating, awakening sermon 
at a revival meeting. The widow decided to check her email and see what kind of email had come in from family and friends. When she read the first email, she fainted and fell to the floor. Her son ran in to see what happened, and this is what he saw on the computer screen. To my dear wife, subject I have arrived. Message, I know you're surprised to hear from me. They now have computers here, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I have just arrived and been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. You can see that if we take our stories literally, if we allow words to be real, they can have an immediate impact. One of the reasons I developed the InterTalk technology was to desensitize the negative repl- negative and replace it with a positive stream of self-talk. This changes our expectations, which in turn alters our perceptions and thereby enriches our experiences. Now, that may not cool how hot it is, but it will help you change the context. What are your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? That is a funny story. That makes me, uh, yeah, roll around a little bit. Um, But, yeah, words are um, incredibly powerful, and we give them a whole lot more power based on everything that we have learned. So, as you said, you know, all of these thoughts are connected elsewhere, and so the, you know, the meaning we may give to something could be totally unrelated to what really is and we see that time and time again so well and more importantly and i think we may take this up with our guests today but uh we tend to you know even panic at the thought of some things like public speaking oh my god i can't get out there and do that (laughs) you know um i I mean i personally had that experience you know that story i mean uh, years ago i just simply was petrified at the idea of uh, public speaking to say nothing of being a radio host i mean get out of my <laughs> face so we we can take these fears these ideas uh, and we can just take them to a point where they become so self-sabotaging so self-limiting that well uh, we fail to maximize our potential out of our own self-imposed fears all right Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Dr. Mario Martinez, and we discussed his work and book, The Mind-Body Cell. Anthony wrote, love Dr. Martinez, thanks for the show. Richard wrote, the brain works entirely from mechanisms that predict what's about to happen. The brain cannot handle all the data it would demand to actually stay current with what is actually happening now. It would be just too much data. Thus, the brain always predicts reality based upon stored data, then just corrects if reality differs in real time. That is an incredibly efficient model. It has incredible implications. And yes, as your guest says, you store the entire body state when you store memories. This guy is hitting on all cylinders for me, one write-on concept after another. I get very excited when I hear this kind of quality intellect. Well, Richard, just stay tuned to Provocative Enlightenment. That's all we bring is quality intellect. Um, my self-exception, I suppose. <laughs> Moving on. Glenn wrote this about my recent appearance on Guy MTV. I just finished viewing Open Minds with Regina Meredith on Gaia, where she interviewed you with a focus on your book, Gotcha. Her shows regularly feature guests from a more esoteric paranormal perspective, so I was pleasantly surprised to see you there this week. Unfortunately, I'm not convinced that she actually read your book, as she seemed to think you are a conspiracy theorist. She continually interrupted your replies to her queries as they did not mesh with her preconceived notions and apparent inability to see that possibly some of the subconscious mind lives within the physical brain body. Yeah, no kidding. To her, the subconscious is out there in the other. 
I am not a regular viewer of her program and felt as though she not only dismissed your answers, but also dismissed me with her. My viewers already know this comments. Your interviews with George Nury on the same network seem more relaxed and natural as dialogue between two friends who at least know and respect each other. Anyway, you were gracious and polite as usual, treating Regina with a respect for which you were well known. Thank you. Well, thank you, Glenn. Uh, I received an apology from Gaia. Uh, it was a very uncomfortable interview. As you noted, there were some pretty tense moments when I felt as though Regina wanted to put words in my mouth or represent some agreement between us about ideas that I did not share. Nevertheless, most people who saw this show reported both the tension and a worthwhile nature to viewing the show. So for all of you out there, if you've not seen the episode, you can view it on Open Minds with Regina Meredith, available on Gaia.com. All right, now S.W. wrote this about my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. I so admire Dr. Eldon Taylor, first of all, for the man he is and the work he has done. I have read several of his books and used some of his programs. I likewise admire his courage for daring to expose what has been done and is going on to handle the public at large. This book is an eye-opener. It documents and exposes the tests that have been and are being done on people, on you and I, right now. The university research, the approved studies that have gone on since the 40s, into how human beings behave and think, that allows certain people to manipulate the rest. Fully documented, this book is an invitation to become aware of what is going on around us. It is only when we are aware that we can subvert the tactics being applied that are designed to subvert our behavior and thoughts, socially, economically, politically, and especially commercially. Well, thank you, SW. I appreciate that very much. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside your comfort zone, Rise to the Challenge and Build Confidence with author Professor Andy Molinsky. So let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Andy Molinsky is a professor at Brandeis University International Business School with a joint appointment in the Department of Psychology. He received his Ph.D. in Organizational Behavior and M.A. in Psychology from Harvard University. Andy's work helps people develop the insights and courage necessary to act outside their personal and cultural comfort zones when doing important but challenging tasks in work and life. His research and writing has been featured in Harvard Business Review, Inc. Magazine, Psychology Today, The Financial Times, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Boston Globe, NPR, and Voice America. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Andy Malinsky. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this show. We uh, like to know three things. Uh, professor, who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin by learning more about you. How did you become interested in this idea of stepping out of your comfort zone? Well, Probably because I'm so bad at it myself. <laughs> you know, I think I think there's an old saying that we write about, and as professors, we study things that that we struggle with. And you know, I'm I'm no different. I I when I was in college, I was the I was the kid who would sit in the back of the room, and uh, my heart would beat. Uh, I would start to think about speaking up in class. My face would get red, and I I just wouldn't say anything. Or you know, I I I remember. Um, after college, I was afraid of networking. I would I would walk into an, uh, maybe walk up to a networking event, sort of to peer into the room, see see everyone talking, and it sounded like this you know very busy, um, energetic event where everyone seemed so confident. And I would I, you know I would look at it and I would turn around and tell myself I don't really need to do this, and so on and so forth. I was afraid of public speaking for years, which is really hard as a professor. I have to tell you. So. Yes. Uh, so you know, I I think that I think uh, one key source was was my own challenges that I have struggled with and that I have worked very hard to overcome. The other source I think for this um, book is that my first book before this was it's called Global Dexterity. 
familiarity. It's about acting outside your cultural comfort zone, so switching and adapting your behavior across cultures um, in acting outside your cultural comfort zone. And I got, I got a lot of nice feedback from that book, not only from people who are living, studying, and working across cultures, but also from people who really were doing things that had nothing to do with crossing cultures, but said that the ideas in the book were helpful to them in terms of just stepping outside their comfort zone in general. And a light bulb went off, went, went on over my head, and I thought to myself, man, I, I'd love to write another book sort of building upon that work, building upon my own personal life experiences, and then doing a whole bunch of new research about people stepping outside their comfort zones, just period. And so that, that, that's how this book was born. Let me, let me ask you this. You heard today's spotlight. How much of a problem is it in all of us when we make thoughts into things, when we take our fears and we allow them to govern us? Well, uh, that was a great story, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love Tara. Yeah, so um, so uh, when our thoughts govern us, well, you know, um, I, I think um, I think that 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 my work is, is is about courage, and it's about finding the courage to do things that that you find hard and, and that are scary for you and and that are uncomfortable, but 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 you know and or want to be able to learn to do them, and so in that in that case at least initially, um, your thoughts are working against you. And what courage is, is to, to take action, to find the wherewithal, to, to, to figure out a way to get yourself to take that leap and take action despite the fears that you experience. And so in that way, you know, thoughts and thinking can, they're, they're, both, a sor- they're, they're both a source of avoidance and a barrier, but they also hold the potential to help you really learn to step outside your comfort zone if you can harness them. Okay, now I'm going to ask you kind of a, a, you know, it's not that technical for you, but a kind of a question that, you know, comes up often when we're talking about, you know, changing our thoughts or, you know, we have cultural and psychological imprinting that suggests to all of us a certain expected behavior. Now, you know, often this behavior is self-destructive, as you pointed out. But, for example, we know from fMRI studies that when you're in the presence of an authority, such as your doctor or minister, the area of the brain that discriminates shuts down, to use the word of PET or MRI folks. In other words, we are so enculturated with some notions, like the notion of the power of authority, that we often fail to question the information imparted by them. This sort of self-governor on our behavior exists in many domains of our lives. So two-part question, Professor. Should we all step out of this comfort zone, and how do we do that? Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I wouldn't necessarily call that a comfort zone, I guess. The, the, idea, the idea that we might have automatic responses to authority, what you described also reminds me of uh, automatic stereotyping. Um, uh, implicit associations, they call it, yes. psychology. Um, I, I don't know if I would call that a comfort zone necessarily. I do think it is automatic, learned, often unconscious behavior. What research shows that I'm aware of is that is that um, is that 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 with with effort and motivation and awareness, you can overcome sort of your automatic tendencies, right? Sure. So, so, so that's it's. it's it's, it's awareness, number one, and then it's motivation, number two. And so um, I, I don't know if I would draw a direct parallel to my work and my book about comfort zones, but I think that that's what my answer would be is that, you know. Well, I guess, you, the, yeah. I guess the reason it occurred to me, Professor, is, you know, assume you know. Um, my son, I've got a son that is fully familiar with, you know, some of these mechanisms and um, is studying psychology and, he he's aware enough, but when he has these questions in the presence of an authority, um, his boss, he has a part-time job, his boss and or the doctor, he has great difficulty exerting, um, you know, stepping forward, if you will, and uh, taking the initiative to say, well, now, wait a minute, is there another possibility or couldn't this be done better or I'm not sure I accept that. Is there, you know, he, 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 and so I guess that's why I thought of it as a comfort zone. 
No, I, I think it's a good it's a good point. I, I I now see a bit more of what you're saying. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of um, it reminds me of a lot of the um, people I interviewed and have worked with for my first book about acting outside your cultural comfort zone. So these might be, let's say, I'm just going to give you an example: a young consultant at Price Waterhouse, a big consultancy, and this mm-hmm. young consultant might come from a culture perhaps from an East Asian culture like Korea or China or maybe an African culture, somewhere where they were ingra- it was ingrained into their minds ever since they were young to respect authority, uh, which means your parents, which means your teachers, and which means your boss, right? Maybe right. even your military, uh, the, the people above you in the military, because a lot, in a lot of these countries there's a compulsory military service. So they get to Price Waterhouse as a young consultant, and all of a sudden, they're told, you know what? We want you in brainstorming meetings, in small meetings with your team, we want you to, to, to speak up, potentially even conflicting with the, with the authority figures, with the senior partners. We also want you to build relationships with senior partners and call them by their first name. And this is for someone who has lived their entire life in a culture where you speak only when spoken to in a highly deferential, you know, top-down culture. That's kind of, I think, what you're talking about, and that yes. is easier said than done. To, to even if you are aware, as you describe with your son, that does take work to be able to step outside your comfort zone. Um, but 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 if you're but if you're motivated enough, I've seen many cases where people are able to do it. I love your book, and I love the tools that you have in your book. Uh, but it's heralded by many as you know, this is the book for the businessman. Um, I didn't get that out of it. I, I thought it looked as good for a homemaker as it might for a CEO. Who did you write the book for? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because, you know, it's funny. Um, when I talked to my so the, the book's uh, published with uh, Penguin Random House, and I, wa- I really wanted to include a lot of just stories from everyday life because I think the ideas are so relevant. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent, for instance, and a lot of things I write about feel so relevant to parenting. Um I was advised to write the book with mostly work examples. There's some non-work examples, but mostly work examples. But then again, they're from many different professions, right? All different kinds of professions. And and what I was advised was that if I write a book with mostly work examples, then it's a workbook that really does apply more broadly than a workbook. But I was advised not to use, you know, just many different examples from all parts of one's life because people felt perhaps that the message would be muddled a little bit. But so, so, so I'm glad you said that, um, and and I do feel that the book applies more broadly. And I've written other articles and blog posts and various other things that do apply it more broadly as well. I, I, I totally concur. I think this is a book that everyone out there can appreciate, and, it, and it's it's written very well. It's it's not written in some esoteric, uh, you know, mumbo jumbo or psycho babble. It's it's written in a very plain, straightforward way. That is very powerful. My my compliments on that. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. You have an interesting pictorial in your book. Two circles. A small <laughs> one labeled comfort zone and one at least twice the size of the smaller one labeled magic happens. Can we really expect what seems like magic to happen if we expand our zone? It's funny. When you Google, so, that, so when I started... Uh, doing the research for this book, which must have been in, I don't know, 2013, 2000, maybe 2014, um, I, I first was very curious, and I wanted to go to Google you know, or Bing or whatever your favorite search engine is, and I just wanted to see what people, what was out there in the zeitgeist, you know, in the world about comfort right. zones, because, you know, people talk a lot about them, and this image, the image that you just described, is an image that kept popping up in these search engines. The other image, by the way, that kept popping up was the, an image of fish in a fishbowl and a fish trying to jump out of the fishbowl. Mm-hmm. But that image of the comfort zone and where the magic happens in these two different circles, and, of course, and the implication, of course, is that the magic is not happening in your comfort zone because they're two separate circles. What frustrated me about that picture, I mean, it's a, it's a nice picture. It sort of it, it, it makes the point that, you know, you got to step outside your comfort zone. But, but what was frustrating to me is that it doesn't give you a pathway. There's no bridge. There's no, there's no, from, there's no way, it portrayed at least in the meme, in the picture, of getting 
outside your comfort zone. It just it simply says you're supposed to get out of your comfort zone, but it doesn't tell you how. And so that that's what was both inspiring but also a bit frustrating to me about that photo. And that's 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 why I, I kind of use it in the introduction to the book to, to kind of set up the purpose of my book is to answer that question. Okay, and when we come back from the break, we're going to go to that. But first, I everybody knows they need to get out of their comfort zone, but they just don't do that. It seems to be very, very hard. That's the question I want you to answer first when we come back. We're speaking with Professor Anthony Malinsky about his work and book, Reach. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at Andy, A-N-D-Y, Malinsky, M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y, Andy Malinsky, one word, dot com. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing global dexterity. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. To be the sad man Behind blue eyes No one knows what it's like To be hated To be faded To telling only lies But my dreams They are as empty As my My love is vengeance that's never free. No one knows what it's like to feel these feelings like I do. And I blame you. No one bites back as hard on me. None of my pain and woe can show through. But my dreams. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Andy Malinsky about his work and book, Reach. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at andymalinsky.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of Behind Blue Eyes, performed by The Who. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? This is... uh probably my favorite song growing up uh there's a i used to 
um, go to summer camp uh, when I was a kid, and we always used to play this, and it reminds me of that. And you know, I think that there's like a melancholy feeling to the song, and as you listen to the lyrics, there's also it's actually very consistent with what we're talking about today. There's Pete Townsend of the Who is talking about um, how no one really knows the experience that he's experiencing. So sort of like the the idea of uh, a public persona and a, and a private persona, uh, and that oftentimes people don't really have the ability to access, except for ourselves, our private personas, unless we choose to share it. And so I think that's what he's ultimately doing in this song. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I love the song, too. I love the lyrics as well. I often, however, thought melancholy. It could be a little bit, you know, you can somehow feel like you're really separated from the world when you listen to this one. You get that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I'd forgotten uh, you originally asked me, you know, for a song. And at the time, I didn't even, I just responded with what my favorite song was. But I didn't, uh, I hadn't remembered that. When I just heard it, it, it you know, it just pop. these memories pop. So I, I agree with you that there's a real psychology to music it kind of hits you in a way that um that uh that simply words don't it's it's got a lot of memory attached to it and it's not just the words of course the melody amen all right before the break i said you know we were going to talk about why is it so hard for people to break out or reach outside of their comfort zone sure so, so, so for the, I should just say one quick word for the book. Um, I interviewed a lot of different people in a lot of different professions. So managers, doctors, police officers, um, therapists, actors, students, priests, rabbis, teachers, even a goat farmer. <laughs> lots of different people in lots of different situations, too. So I was trying to sample pretty broadly to get a, kind of to get a good sense uh, um, of, of, of the question that you asked, you know, why is it hard? And what I found is that is, is it essentially boiled down to five things. Um, I call them sort of psychological roadblocks or challenges. And it's not the case that you're going to experience every one of these every time you step outside your comfort zone or consider doing it. But, but these are the big five. Um, the first is authenticity, you know, feeling that, that, that this is not me. I feel like, you know, I feel like an imposter speaking in front of a meeting or putting, uh, putting on my grown-up voice when trying to pitch my ideas to venture capitalists or whatever, whatever however you want to look at it, um, this is not me. I feel inauthentic. That's the first one. The second one is, is competence or incompetence. I, I, I can't do this well, and, and I'm afraid other people can tell that. You know, I'm, I'm terrified to public speak, for example, be, speak in public, because I, I, I think I'll look like a fool, and, and frankly, I think other people will think that as well. Um, likeability is the third one. That I, I, I worry that, that people won't like or respect this, this version of me that I'm putting out there. Of course, this is outside my comfort zone, remember. And, they, they, you know, they'll hate me if I'm assertive. You know, if I speak my mind and I speak up, they're going to hate me. Uh, or if I deliver that bad news that I need to as part of my job, they're going to hate me. Um, resentment is the fourth one. So you've got authenticity, competence, likability, resentment. You know, I'm uh, frustrated that I have to step outside my comfort zone in the first place in this situation. You know, logically, I might understand why I need to do it, but I'm psychologically, I'm frustrated. So, for example, I've spoken with a lot of introverts um, who feel very frustrated about the fact that today's world of work, at least in the United States, is, is a very extroverted-oriented world of work, where extroverts have a bit of an advantage. So, you know, introverts might say, why does it matter so much that I can make small talk by the water cooler or talk about last night's ball game or whatever? Why does that matter for me to get the promotion or get that real great opportunity? How about the quality of my work? That's resentment. And then the final uh, challenge is morality. And, you know, I, I didn't see it that often, but I thought enough that I included it. And that's the idea that you're worried that in stepping outside your comfort zone and whatever situation this is, you're worried you're doing something wrong. Like, like ethically wrong. Um, I actually opened the book um, with a story of a, a young woman who is an entrepreneur, started a small company, and um, soon after, she ended up having to fire her best friend. Um, so that, that, for her, was an example of the morality challenge. And, and as I say, you're not going to experience every one of these challenges in every situation that might be outside your comfort zone, but even one of these challenges can make it hard. Now, you talk about your research, and 
what I hear so far is interviews. Um, did you go further than interviews? And if not, how many interviews did you conduct? Sure. So, so there are different pieces of this research that were conducted at different times. Um, there were, uh, I did a lot of interviews. Uh, for a certain piece of the research or a part of the research, I had a colleague, a colleague of mine who now is a professor at Harvard Business School, and we did some of this work together, pieces of it. Um, for other, for some some parts of the research, I actually did um, some what we call participant observation. So, for example, um, when I, I did a, I did many interviews with uh, maybe gosh, maybe thirty-ish interviews with police officers um, about their experiences having to evict families from their homes uh, and repossess property. I hung out at a police station for a while. I inter, you know, many diff- different days, interviewed a lot of different police officers. Uh, by the way, the coffee and donuts story is true, that police officers do, at least where I was, <laughs> drank a lot of coffee and ate a lot of donuts. Um, but then I also did, was able to do a ride-along, which is, um, which is with participant observation, where I was in the back of a police car with a, with a bulletproof vest and everything, and I, I accompanied two officers as they performed 20 evictions. Uh, one day in, in a metropolitan city. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to observe firsthand some of these challenges. And so for many of the situations, these were, these were interviews, because for, for, for many of these things, you, you, can't, you don't have the opportunity to look at something firsthand. Um, but, but, and so overall interviews, gosh, probably, you know, in the hundreds for sure, if you, if you take everything together in terms of all the interviews I did for this book, I should also say that um, I teach and train people and coach people on stepping outside their comfort zone. So I've had firsthand experience as well with people uh, learning to do things like making small talk when they feel very uncomfortable doing that or networking or speaking up at meetings and so on and so forth. So I also have that, that eye as well. So it's a combination of, of methods in a way uh, that, that I sort of brought to the book. Plus, of course, since I'm, you know, I'm a researcher, um, by, by training, I was, I'm able to access and understand other people's research and incorporate and weave that into my story as well. Okay. Your work with law enforcement and this participatory observation uh, work that you're, you're talking about leads me in a direction that I've, I've just got to ask you. Um, in law enforcement today, a lot of behavioral science is used as pioneered, as you know, by the FBI and the BAU and uh, uh, John Douglas. And uh, there are manuals today, uh, somewhat like the DSM, uh, essentially that outline the kinds of criminals that commit certain types of crimes. Were you able to see that there is a difference in strategies that you might outline that existed according to vocation? In other words, a vocational difference in strategies to avoid stepping out of their comfort zone. Uh, it's a good question. I, I have to say that I did not notice um, vocational differences. What I did notice, however, is that, and we can talk about this if we have some time, about some of the strategies people used to enable themselves to step outside their comfort zone. One of the key strategies people used was what they did is I called it, I ended up calling it customization. They, they customized a way to do a particular task that sort of enabled them to do the task but put their own little unique twist or spin on it to make it feel a little bit more authentic to them. And where professions come in is that in different professions, there were often different ways to do this, different tools available to people in order to do this customization. So in that way, there were some wouldn't call it professional differences per se, but different opportunities um, offered to people by profession and also by task too. It's not just profession; it could be task as well. So, but but to, I guess to answer your, your basic question, no, I didn't. I didn't see that. Uh, nor, by the way, in this particular study, did I see big gender differences. Um, I'm often asked about that, and it doesn't mean that they don't exist. But I didn't. I didn't go in there to study that. If I were to go in and study that, I would have designed a study in order to be able sure. to see that better. And, I, and, I, and that, that wasn't the original intent of the work. Okay, so let's have you unpack some of the avoidance strategies. If we didn't have a vocational difference, 
you know, they would generally be the kinds of things that we all might, you know, grab a hold of, plus or minus what's available to us. So what are some of those strategies other than customized? Uh, are you interested in hearing about the ways we avoid or, or the ways that we can more successfully do it? The ways we avoid first, please. I, oh, okay, I'm sorry sure. I didn't yeah. make that clear. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's no problem. Yeah. I mean, that was one thing I saw across the board. And if I reflected on my own experience, and I'm imagining if listeners uh, reflect on their experiences, we're all pretty good at avoiding things outside our comfort zone. (laughs) You know, in some cases, we just simply say no. We just simply don't do it. I remember when I was, um, uh, my first few years as a professor, um, I was offered opportunities to give keynote speeches. Um, This was 20 years ago. And I was terrified of speaking back then. It was not my... It was not my forte, and I had had very little experience with it. And I remember completely avoiding it. I would say no. I would say that my calendar was full. When if I looked at my calendar, it was completely open. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I would be like, you know, um, clenching my fists, hoping they just wouldn't say, "Oh well, how about next week?" You know, uh, when when I said that a certain <laughs> day wouldn't work. So I, back then, and that was a long time ago, I was avoiding um, entirely. Some, sometimes we we only deliver part of the of, of the task or do only part of the task uh, and, and and leave the other part of the task that's the most uncomfortable for us and not do that that's another possibility like deliver only part of the negative feedback you need to deliver um, other times we we substitute but we imperfectly substitute so for example a small business owner I spoke with for the book um, he was he, he runs a travel agency in in, in his his job is to find clients for his travel agency. And in the, in the, in the, in the, the world of Expedia and TripAdvisor and all these Internet sites, it's hard to be a local travel agent. So he needs to build actual relationships with people. The problem is, is he's kind of socially awkward, and he, he's not great at doing that. And so he would avoid going to these networking events or town meetings or picnics or get-togethers. And instead, he said he would rationalize to himself and say, you know, I'm just going to post on Facebook or send out an email blast, you know, which, which aren't bad things necessarily, but they're not a perfect substitute for the thing he was really fearful of. Um, sometimes we um, pass the buck, have someone else do something that we should be the one doing. And, and then sometimes we just rationalize to ourselves and say, you know what, this, this isn't really that important. I don't really need to do this. It's not such a big deal. You know, I, I, I don't have to when in fact, of course, maybe you don't have to, but it probably would be a good idea for you to start to learn to do that. And so, so those are, those are, and of course, you can mix and match, right? You can mix and match. Um, right. You know, I, I would, you know, avoid public speaking and tell myself it wasn't that important, for example. So, so, so I think I suspect that all of us do this. Um, uh, we, we, especially if we have autonomy in our jobs and our lives, we can craft and construct an existence at work and in our lives where we avoid things outside our comfort zones. But the problem is, is that in order to grow and advance in our lives and our work, we're often confronting situations uh, where uh, in order to grow and advance, you do need to step outside your comfort zone. And, and so, so that's, that's where the rubber hits the road, and that's where it, it, it is important to, for, for many of us to achieve our goals to, to learn to do this. Well, you know, you... You do, I think, a, a, a really good job in flushing out uh, some of the benefits that we gain um, as a result of, uh, that are potentially gained as a result of stepping out of our comfort zone uh, and, and what the cost of avoidances are. But take a minute here and share with our audience uh, what you see as the greatest opportunity that we all have with regard to comfort zones. I think... I think time and time again, I see it in transition, milestones. You know, when you're moving from high school to college, when you're moving from, from being a student to, to being a worker and working in an organization when you've never done that before, when you're an individual performer and, and then all of a sudden you're going to become a manager or a leader or you've never owned a business in your life and now you're an entrepreneur or you've never, you know what I mean? It's these, it's these transition points and, 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 and they're kind of, Endemic to the idea of growth—that's what growth is about, right? Um, or, or, or you're single and you're going to start dating and being in a real relationship, or maybe you're going to get married, or maybe you're going to have kids, right? That's a massive—I can tell you from personal experience. You know, I imagine a lot of the listeners have this experience. It's a massive life transition outside many people's comfort zones. So, 
you can avoid, but but you can also, I think, limit yourself. It's a self-limiting strategy, ultimately. Of course, it, 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 it's relieving. It, it's a relief not to have to do certain things, but it also limits your growth. Uh, at the end of your book, and, and I've got a lot of questions here and not a lot of time left, but I, I, I want to get to this because at the end of your book, you offer a Q&A, a, a sort of workbook, a guidance system. Now, you, you indicated that you also coach people. Um, it, in this this um, workbook, and that I have lack of a better term for it, that comes at the end of your book, several pages, questionnaires, etc., uh, are designed to help people get out of their comfort zone. Since you've done so much coaching and or participatory research, do you have feedback from your users that have used this system? And if so, can you share some of it with us? Yeah, I, I've started. So, so <clears throat> I have done coaching. I also am in the middle of creating an online training course because I've realized that I only can do so much myself um, personally where I am. I want to be able to reach a lot of people. So I'm actually right now in the middle, by the way, which is outside my comfort zone. Sort of, you know, I'm, I'm now like a little small business entrepreneur here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I also have started working in companies. Um, so I actually just um, uh, did training uh, at um, two major Fortune 500 companies this summer uh, where I trained a group of 30 to 40 people each time. And the feedback was, was um, really positive, they, you know, so much that they want to have me back. I, I think, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, what I think is the biggest, um, the two biggest ahas about this for people um, is, in, at least in an organization, is num- number one, um, talking about this stuff that people are thinking but not talking about. And so I was actually at a, at a consulting firm a couple of months ago and the head of the consulting firm came up to me after the talk, and he said, you know what? He said, do you remember those cartoons we read when we were young and, and how um, there are two different kinds of bubbles in, in written cartoons, like a thought bubble and a speaking bubble? And you're, I right. imagine you, met, you know what those are. He said, mm-hmm. you know what? At this firm, if you looked at the speaking bubble, you would not see one mention of fears and challenges of stepping outside comfort zones and worries and anxieties and so on. But he said, if you were to look at the thinking bubble, Every single office, every single person would have it. And he said that that was one of the biggest ahas from the talk, to kind of normalize it, to say, that, you know what, it's not just you. Uh, it's, it's everybody, in a sense. Um, that's number one. Number two is to put a vocabulary in front of people, a sort of a simple way, but, but hopefully with some richness to it, but still a simple way to understand and speak about and make sense of these issues, and also to have some actual concrete tools like the ones you referenced to help people um, be able to, to uh, approach the problem in, 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 in a sensible way. So, so that's what I've found, and I've, I've found that people find it really, really useful. It's, frankly, it's inspired me to create this online course that I'm creating, so I, I, I've been, it's, it's actually really exciting for me. So that, 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 I hope that answers your question. Very well. We're kind of short on time, so I'm just going to ask a question, uh, Professor. Um, you did all this research. Was there anything that surprised you when you were doing it uh, and, and preparing to write the book? Um, surprised me. Uh, well, you know, I think what, what continually surprises me, whether it was in the research or especially in the live events that I do, the speaking or sometimes virtual speaking or in-person events, how readily every single person <laughs> comes up with examples. And, and, by the way, many, many people are willing to talk about them, more, be, being more vulnerable um, with these um, situations that in some ways are quite painful uh, to talk about that, that I wouldn't have expected otherwise. But I think that the I hope that I give a sort of comfortable vibe when I talk with people about these things, uh, when I'm coaching or training or speaking or teaching or, or writing. And, and I also want to, as I said, the word normalize. I think that's really important to normalize it, to, to say that, you know what, this is not just you. Because if no one's talking about it, the, the, the obvious implication in your own mind is it's just you, right? But when people talk about it and 
you give, give a lot of different examples and a lot of different stories and some real tools to approach it, you realize it's not just me, it's everybody, and here's a way we can, we can manage it. So I think that's, that's, that's really what I've learned. It's a great book, Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside your comfort zone, rise to the challenge, and build confidence. It's an important part of your armamentarian if you're concerned about uh, how high is up, what you might do with the potential of your life. Professor, in 30 seconds, tell our audience how they can reach out to you and learn more about what you do and uh, contact you for that matter. Yeah, I'd love to reach out to people, uh, but you can easily find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. I have an author Facebook page, and the very best way to reach me is through my website, which is www.andymolinsky.com, and my name is spelled A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. Got lots of cool stuff on the website, you know, lots of articles, videos, and so on and so forth, and I've tried to make the website a fun place to visit. So, um, yeah, I, I love to connect with listeners. Great site. Do visit it. Thank you for your work, Professor, and for your willingness to share it with us. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.